The weather gods are going to send Jane Cahoon into retirement in style. We're supposed to have a beautiful rest of the week. It's about time and good luck to Jane. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Layla Tassi, and Jane Cahoon. Hope you all had a good weekend. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to playing outside while you guys are working. Well, but this week, that would be fun. The past week, you'd have been dragged. No. You know, we had three soccer games and we had three rain delays, two cancellations, and finally got a game in. So. It's just been so wet out there, man. You can't do anything without getting drenched. But, Jane, the, you're going to march off into 70s and sunny. So Woo-hoo. that'll be cool after tomorrow. you got two more days left. So, you know, give it to me here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My best. Squeeze every ounce of productivity. Yes, indeed. Out of you're going to do capital letter until the last minute. <laughs> oh, boy. All right. Let's begin. Could Larry Elder, a conservative radio host who got his broadcasting start when he was a lawyer in Cleveland, really be the next governor of California? Jen Cahoon, Sabrina Eaton reached a lot of people who knew him back in the day in Cleveland and wrote a fascinating story about his (laughs) quest to be a conservative governor in far left California. Unbelievable. This really is quite an interesting situation where, yeah, because of, I guess, what you would call a quirk in California law, Larry Elder could become governor with just a small portion of the vote. And and for that to happen, voters would first have to decide in this September 14th election to recall Governor Gavin Newsom. And that is a possibility. He seems to be maybe favored to narrowly survive. But You know, if the turnout's low, the side that wants to recall him could be more motivated to show up than the other voters. But um, but get this, they they the voters then could pick one of 46 candidates, 46. And whoever gets the most votes would win if Newsom gets recalled. And Elder, you know, he's a celebrity there. So he seems to be leading the pack with about 23 percent support in one of the polls. But you know, he describes himself as a as a socially liberal libertarian who is fiscally conservative. But but others, including Newsom, say he's really extreme. He's the most Trumpian of the candidates and and uh, that he's really out of the mainstream. But as we said, it this could happen. So um, I don't know how many of our listeners would remember Elder from his time here in Cleveland. But as you said, Sabrina reached a lot of people who knew him fairly well. He grew up in South Central Los Angeles and his father, you know, he had humble beginnings. His father was a janitor and his parents later ran a cafe, but he ended up going to Brown University and then the University of Michigan Law School. And that's where he got recruited by what was then the Cleveland law firm of Squire Sanders and Dempsey, which is now Squire Patton Boggs. And he became one of only five black lawyers among 150 associates. So uh, one of the people Sabrina talked to was Fred Nance, who's now the firm's global managing partner. He described Elder as someone who was really gifted, sharp, you know, a successful attorney, somebody with vision and definitely the gift of gab, which is, I guess, why he ended up where he ended up. But he eventually left the law firm and established a legal headhunting firm in the Cleveland area. And that's where he kind of got his start in uh, quote unquote media, I guess. He started writing opinion pieces for newspapers and and then he got some guest shots on local TV and radio. So he ended up hosting these low budget discussion shows on 
on Channel 25 and, and Channel 19 in the early 90s. And then one day, a uh, conservative talk show host and Elder were guests on Channel 5's Morning Exchange. And um, this guy invited Elder to look him up in Los Angeles. And then from that, he ended up with this with this offer to come back to his hometown. Now he's got this nationally syndicated radio show. He's regarded as, as I said, ultra conservative. I mean, people like Fred Nance and former County Commissioner Peter Lawson Jones both said they strongly disagree with Elder's political views. But uh, Jones, as Jones put it, you better be on your intellectual A game if you're going to have a, a debate with him because he's he's quite bright and sharp yeah he's he's a yeah he's a brilliant guy but he kind of stands against everything california stands (laughs) for which is which would be interesting if he were the the governor it this sabrina reached a lot of people some weren't even aware of how conservative yeah and they were really surprised yeah Um, and to to see that he's doing this i got to give a tip of the hat to our former colleague mark russell he's now the executive editor of the Memphis newspaper, but he sent a note to say, Hey, you ought to look at this. Uh, I, I did not realize elder had come from here and that's what got us started on this story. Um, it's a great piece. I, I, it'll, I just, what, what could Larry elder do as governor when he's surrounded by legislators that will try and stop him at every turn? <laughs> well, it's funny. Peter Lawson Jones said, yeah, he elder would be one of the brightest people to ever become California governor, but he'd be this lightning rod who could, end up being targeted with his own recall because he's so controversial. Yeah. I mean, what, what did it, what did the story say? He wanted to abolish Medicare. I mean, he, he was, he, he very, very, very far to the right, but very, yeah, he didn't talk to us for the story, but we had enough of his material. He's been out there so long that we can. Yeah. He did an interview with us in the nineties. So she relied on that. And, and as you said, she reached all these people who, who knew him and, and uh, you know, had nice things to say, but, but, Almost all of them were like, this guy is extreme. Well, and he's he's battling some challenges now that he's become one of the front runners. People are lodging a lot of complaints against him that Sabrina detailed. He has a, a bit of a challenge ahead, public relations wise. Yeah. You are listening to This Week in the CLE. Why aren't hundreds of thousands of Ohioans seeking waivers to keep the money they were overpaid in unemployment benefits? Jen Kuhn, this one doesn't make sense to me because people came out of the woodwork through in the beginning of the pandemic with their complaints about the Unemployment Bureau and all the trouble they had. And here they have a chance to easily take care of one of their biggest problems that they got this money that they weren't supposed to get, but they've spent. What's the deal? Well, I'm afraid I'm going to let you down, Chris, because I don't have the answer to the question of why. But we do know that only about 18 percent of the 700,000 or so Ohioans who got notified that they were overpaid have applied so far for a waiver to keep this money. And I don't know. This is total speculation, but maybe it's because, you know, they already have the money and they just don't think the state's going to come after them for it. I, it's not like they're they have to apply to get the money. They had the money, so that's my only you know explanation. But the the history here is that you know we had all these we had an unprecedented number of unemployment claims during the pandemic, and they made a lot of mistakes you know by the state officials or employers, and that led to like tens of thousands of Ohioans being told that they had to repay these benefits. And it really stressed people out. It wasn't their fault that they were overpaid. 
I guess um, Ohio's unemployment system since the beginning of the coronavirus crisis has paid out a total of almost $3.39 billion in non-fraud claims by mistake. And that's either because of an error by state officials or by employers of the recipients. So, and then they had an additional 478 million in fraudulent claims. But, you know, they're notifying the people, they're telling them to wait until we notify you and then you can apply for the waivers. But as I said, the ones who received these notices, you know, most of them haven't applied. How do you make 700,000 mistakes? <laughs> I, I, that, that's the part of this that I, I don't get. We keep talking about these big numbers, but that's 700,000 <laughs> times the, these got, people at the bureau made a mistake. How do you do that? <laughs> Chris, just don't underestimate them, okay? <laughs> 700,000 times they paid somebody too much money. Boggles the mind. It, I'd love to see the audit that comes out of that, how they did that. Yeah. yeah. And apparently they're still having trouble setting up that system where they're going to, you know, pay people back who got their accounts hijacked by scammers. And they're still working on that. They say it's taken a little longer than they thought. So that was another wow. part of the story. All right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE what are the choices that Ohio schools have for educating children who are sent home because of coronavirus outbreaks or quarantines? Laura Johnston, we were talking about this last week, wondering what would happen as these kids get sent home for two weeks because they've been exposed to somebody or they weren't wearing a mask or they get the coronavirus. What, what would happen? Because they're already set back from the, the poor education system during the pandemic. So what are the choices and what's the deadline for making them? Well, the deadline is tomorrow, Tuesday. And so schools have to decide if they're going to offer some kind of blended learning or have a full online school. And Laura Hancock really nailed this down. She actually named all of the school districts that have applied so far. And I have to say, neither my school district nor Layla's has put in anything at the state to figure out how to teach these kids if they get sent home for quarantine. And the thing is, if they don't do that by that date, then they're out of luck. These kids won't have a way to learn from home. They'll just have to get, you know, stuff sent home with them and hope that they can make it up like they were on vacation or something. And how long the kids are out depends on whether they're wearing the mask and what the guidelines of the schools are. If they're vac not vaccinated and not wearing a mask, they need to be out of school and not attending extracurricular activities for seven days. And that's if they get a negative test. If they test positive, they need to isolate for 10 days after the date of the positive test. So what are the choices? So the choices are for blended learning. That's if the school district could put in a plan for that, that at least 51% of the time they would be in school physically in the building. And then they could put in a plan for online learning if they're going to be out of school and online for at least 51% of the time. But that requires a plan on how they're going to teach these kids remotely. And a lot of school districts have not put in any plan at all. And then the one of the things that I didn't understand, it said the you can tack days on at the end of the year. So would that only affect the kids, the portion of the children that were sent home? Or is that more like the district in Southern Ohio that completely shut down for a week that they'll My have to... Yeah, my understanding is that's a calamity day issue. That's if you shut down the same day way as if you had a, a heat day for, you know, saying it's too hot for kids to come to school or a snow day or an ice day or they didn't have electricity that day. That means you have a certain number of days built into your calendar that you can skip school 
and not have to make it up. But if you miss more than that, you're going to be going in in the summer. But I think that's just for school-wide closures. If you've got a kid that has to quarantine for 10 days, I mean, I would assume they'd be excused absences, but that would be up to that kid, that family, and that teacher to get them back up to speed. Can I jump in too? Layla Tassi. I and not only do I think this is important for kids who have to be out quarantining, but remember, remember, Laura, how around the holidays, at least at our school, they they kind of buffered the holiday mm-hmm. season with a week or two of of e-learning right. on both sides of those of those occasions that we knew were going to be high exposure for oh, families right. and kids. I forgot about that. Yeah, and that and that was really important. I mean, even though we're all like, oh, we're back to e-learning, you know that. It was drudgery to be doing that, but we all recognize, or at least sensible people recognize, the importance of having that time blocked out. We knew that we could then send our kids safely back, having quarantined everybody, and uh, we weren't sending them with, you know, high exposure uh, risk. So, you know, I, I think that's that a good point. Huge and it, mistake yeah, we were, to not submit these plans. We were at home between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And then they didn't go back full time till the end of January. So you're you're right, and and I've really kind of taken aback that schools just thought I don't need to do this. I, I mean, maybe they'll submit today or tomorrow. We'll have to take another look. But um, there's there's a bunch of schools that haven't put any plans in. I've, I've I've got to imagine that if we see the increase of outbreaks that that many health experts are predicting in the schools as the kids all get together if things start to get dicey again, that the the state would allow the districts to make those plans later. I mean, you point out right. Thanksgiving when everybody gets together, it's a super spreader event. So maybe they right. don't come back for a week after Thanksgiving, but you would need to have some sort of learning system in place. Yeah. We'll have to see how it's going. Wasn't the peak of hospitalizations closer. during the pandemic right after the holidays? I mean, yeah, that was, December time period was really yeah, December bad. December was the rage. So we'll have to see. That's a really good point, Layla. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How big of a deal is it that Cleveland mayoral candidate Justin Bibb omitted information about his employment on some state ethics disclosures? Layla Tassi, I didn't bring this up last week when it happened because I didn't think it was that big of a deal. I still don't, but some of his... <laughs> opponents are trying yeah. to use this like it's scandalous. And so I figure let's talk about it because it's not scandalous. This isn't something he was keeping secret. Right, right. It's it's a big deal to his opponents. That's kind of what it boils down to. They've been searching for a reason to take Justin Bibb down. He's gaining momentum. You know, a little drop of blood in the water and the sharks start circling. So, yeah. you know, as, as we typically do when covering elections, Bob Higgs requested the ethics disclosures from the Ohio Ethics Commission for the candidates who are running here. And they were pretty boring. But Bob noticed that for the past three years, Justin Bibb hadn't included all the sources of income that we're aware of for him. He was a strategy officer at KeyBank and the head of a nonprofit. And he also failed to list creditors and investments. He only listed the stipend that he received from RTA for serving on their board of directors. And it, I, it's important to note that the state doesn't require those board members to file disclosures, but it's required by RTA's code of ethics. And, you know, that said, knowingly filing a false financial statement can be a first degree misdemeanor, and that's punishable by up to six months in jail and a fine of up to $1,000. So it can be pretty serious. And enforcement of that statute falls to the Ethics Commission investigators. And when Bob looked back at a few examples from history, we discovered that whether Bibb faces prosecution for this depends on the Ethics Commission's view of whether he intended to file a fraudulent form. Bibb says this was an honest mistake. 
he was following the instructions he received from RTA and simply did it wrong. It, it does seem to be a simple oversight, given that most of the information he omitted is publicly available. It's all on his LinkedIn page, for example. But the issue that his opponents are raising isn't that he's hiding something, but how in the world does a candidate for mayor manage to fill out an ethics disclosure incorrectly for three straight years? The instructions are pretty clear. So, you know, they're they're pointing to that as a as a sign that he's not ready for this big job of managing a city budget, you know, across all funds of $1.8 billion. So we'll see how how or if this continues to plague him through the rest of, of this uh, this race. Yeah, I, th- this is one where we, we we need to do the story. Of course, no one else in town was doing this story. It was us doing this story. And then we came back with the follow-up to say, what has this meant for others and, and laid it all out? This is our job. That's what we right. do. But it was never a story. I mean, we've had previous people get in trouble with this. Right. Joe Jones, the councilman, went in and shook Nate Gray down, used this position to shake Nate Gray down for a loan while while, while the feds were watching because they're investigating Nate Gray and then didn't disclose that. Well, the only way you can find out about that loan is through that disclosure. Mm-hmm. For Justin mm-hmm. Bibb, all, the stuff that was missing from his disclosure form is available everywhere else, including his LinkedIn page. So it's not like exactly. this was secret stuff and it was, I mean, it's a procedural error uh, you know, and look, let's face it, we've all messed up forms we filled out. And if you fill it out once and then you have to fill it out for the next couple of years, you just get the last year's one and you change the date on it and send <laughs> it in again. So it's not like you misread the directions three times. You misread them once. It's just not I don't think it's that big a deal, but I figured we should deal with it because our reporting has launched other candidates against it. It's odd that the other candidates are not making much of Bashir Jones's YouTube video where he basically says women have, you know, have to be subservient to men and uh, some of the other things out there that I think are much more debilitating for candidates. This is this is minor stuff. Yeah, I think that it 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 that should that should be a sign of how serious of a contender Justin Bibb is. He's really gaining momentum throughout the east and west side. And so I think that, uh, you know, and and, you know, he is so fresh in the game, he doesn't have much of a history to dissect and criticize. And so I think that uh, something like this is, you know, all of, they're all going to just kind of glom onto it and try to, try to manipulate it, turn it into something bigger than it is. And full disclosure, our editorial board heartily endorsed Justin Bibb. This is true. uh, And, and, but, but our newsroom is the one that did the story about the right. disclosure. So it shows that we do our job regardless of what the editorial board does. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Does anyone know how white-tailed deer got the coronavirus in Ohio? The first white-tailed deer on the planet to do so. Laura Johnson, it's just so odd that the first deer in the world to be diagnosed with coronavirus are from Ohio. Ohio is always in the international story. Oh, I agree. And when I read this from the USDA, I was like, wait, what? Like, really? Ohio? Um, In some ways, that's expected. Do you remember the tiger at the Bronx Zoo at the beginning of the pandemic? And all of a sudden, we realized animals could get this. We wrote a lot of stories about dogs and cats and can they get COVID? And should you let strangers pet your dog? Which 
I mean, they'd be a lot closer than six feet if they're doing that. But Ohio State took samples of deer between January and March of this year. Eight of the nine samples were COVID positive, which means all of these cute little deer running around our neighborhoods that Chris Quinn is taking pictures of and eating our hostas could have COVID. Although none of the deer in the Ohio State study showed any symptoms of the disease, whether that would be, I don't know if deer cough or snivel or what. So, but yeah pretty pretty mind-boggling it does does make you wonder though how they got it i mean yeah there are deer in the neighborhood but we don't pet them right you know we did the stories last year about the the trail you leave as you walk down the street and i guess (laughs) the deer could have been walking by they didn't say if it was the delta variant though no well and i was actually thinking about that but i'm like this is january through march i don't think the delta variant was here yet um, so, yeah, that's, but we, that's yet to come. We don't know how they got exposed. Alexis Oatman talked to um, somebody from the National Veterinary Services and said that they believe it was from another animal, from a person or or the environment, which I'm like, OK, that's how you get Well, that's disease. like, what are the right? other possibilities? I mean, that's what's <laughs> in the sky is blue. Right. I mean, what, and if Wait. it's from another animal, what, what other animals are running around? I don't know. We got to test them deer. all. Maybe the bunnies have COVID or the squirrels. <laughs> Can I jump in? This is Layla Dossi. Uh, we've written stories about about how our water, uh, not our water supply that's been cleaned, but that we see COVID appearing in kind of the uh, sewer system and things like that because of human waste and whatnot. Could they have contracted it from from water sources out in nature? Lake Erie because of the Ugh. overflow that goes into Lake Erie <laughs> where Laura swims? Swim that explains it. <laughs> right, that's that's the just... RNA fragments, right? I don't, I don't know. I guess deer are more susceptible to the virus because they have these protein receptors that allow the virus to enter susceptible cells. Um, but yeah, you'd have to wonder exactly this... how many animals around us have COVID. Yeah, but they still have to get close to it. I that, That's the thing that throws me. But maybe science will figure it out eventually. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. It's Wildlife Day on This Week in the CLE. <laughs> what is going on with groundhogs in Northeast Ohio? And how are some people trying to rid themselves of these cute but destructive critters? <laughs> Layla Tassi, <laughs> you see groundhogs all over the place. They really are kind of cute. But they, they are. are destroying people's yards and in some cases undermining awful. houses. I know. Pete Krause brought th- us this amusing story, though I'm sure it's not amusing for the folks experiencing groundhog damage. It seems development in rural areas has chased groundhogs into the city where it has no, they have no natural predators and they can just, you know, live the good life. <laughs> Residents throughout Cleveland are fed up with these guys tunneling beneath their foundations and threatening to destroy the value in their homes. One group of residents in the North Broadway neighborhood reached out to the city for help, and they were told that the waiting list for a trap would be a month or two. So the neighbors banded together and bought their own traps. A community organization helped them get a grant to buy $5,000 worth of traps, and they call it Operation Groundhog, which is so cute. Uh, (laughs) But the question is whether to euthanize them or send them out to the country. And there's controversy over which is the more humane option because apparently groundhogs will try to make it back home and then they could get hunted by other territorial groundhogs along the way or struck by a car. So there seems to be, you know, some of the residents are like, well, I didn't I didn't mean for it to be euthanized. I just but, you know, I don't want it to, you know, whatever. So uh, interestingly, you know, it's funny because Craig Willis, who's running for city council in Ken Johnson's ward, has made groundhog management a campaign promise. And 
So I, I sit on the editorial board with you, Chris, obviously, and, and he came before us for an interview along with his fellow candidates. And he started out by saying something like, you know, as councilman, I will help the city deal with one of the most devastating scourges we've seen as a city. And I'm sitting there expecting him to say gun violence or poverty or whatever. And he says groundhogs. And I'm just like, my jaw hits the ground. I just couldn't believe that this was, he was elevating. The, but it turns out, yes, indeed, it is a serious problem. And um, so, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was taken aback by the idea that it's more humane to kill them than to take them somewhere else and give them the chance to live. I think if the groundhog was asked for its opinion, it would say, <laughs> I'd prefer to live. I, the, the, they said it's humane. It just kind of threw me uh, that that killing them is better than giving them a chance to live because they might get killed later. But uh, big problem. I, I It was funny when Pete Cross was talking to me about this story. He said, you know, I don't really see groundhogs around. And I'm thinking, I see them everywhere. There's two right <laughs> next to a park on Monticello Boulevard. I think it's in Lyndhurst. And I drove past there this weekend and like clockwork, there there were. When I was reporting for our project, Greater Cleveland, I was hanging out with one of our families on their front porch. And next door to them was this abandoned house. And while we're sitting there, all of a sudden I see the the you know the, uh, the the screen door kind of pop open and out strolls a groundhog from inside the house and he's just standing out on the front porch staring out at the at the yard as if he's the neighbor <laughs> like and like he all he needed was a cup of coffee or something to just fit right in like i it was astounding so i can only imagine what it would be like to live <laughs> like that among the groundhogs we you know here have the deer devouring our hostas. We've got the chipmunks eating out of the bird feeders. I would lose it if we also had a groundhog tunneling under our foundation. So I feel for for the people of Cleveland dealing with this uh, this terrible problem. Well, and if they continue to proliferate, I think we're going to see more and more coyotes in our neighborhoods, which begins to create a danger for children mm. and dogs. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, there is probably a bigger threat here. You're listening to this week in the CLE. What are the chances that the courts will reverse Ohio Governor Mike DeWine's decision earlier this summer to stop accepting the extra $300 that the federal government offered to people receiving unemployment benefits? Jane Cahoon, this is like all things that are testy in the state. Looks like it's headed to the Ohio Supreme Court. Right. I was going to say, I, I'm not sure how to handicap it, but but it's definitely in the hands of the Ohio Supreme Court. You know, this this case kind of looked like a loser earlier on, but it it's managed to get some new life in in recent days. So the history is that DeWine stopped these additional three hundred dollars a week in federal pandemic uh, payments in June. They were supposed to expire at the beginning of September anyway, but he apparently felt that too many workers were staying home because of the extra money. And there's a whole debate about whether that was good or bad for the economy for him to stop them. But anyway, uh, Democratic former Ohio Attorney General Mark Dan brought a lawsuit in Franklin County challenging DeWine's decision. And, uh, you know, a lot of these arguments have been aired out in court. But a Franklin County judge, the Franklin County judge who heard it, Michael Holbrook, initially ruled that DeWine did, uh, DeWine did have the power to stop the payment. So it looked like that, as I said, was kind of a loser. So, but an appeals court ended up sending the case back to Judge Holbrook and instructed him to consider some additional factors, including whether the public interest was being served. But then in stepped our 
current attorney general, Republican Dave Yost, and he appealed to the Ohio Supreme Court. But on Friday, Judge Holbrook decided to listen to testimony anyway, and you know, with people stating the pros and cons of, of stopping these benefits. And afterward, he said he really wanted to reinstate the $300 payments, but his hands were tied because Yost's appeal blocked him from taking action. So Jesse Baumert of the Cincinnati Inquirer was uh, lucky enough to get to cover this on uh, Friday going into the evening. And um, she quoted the judges saying, I so badly want to issue the order, but I'm bound by the rules and I do not have the authority to do so. It's with the Supreme Court now. So uh, how are they going to decide this? Hmm. This, This never made sense to me why the governor would turn down the money that would go to the residents that that were in need of it. The, The claim at the time was. We need to force people back to work. So let's, you know, make them poorer so that they have to take the jobs. It doesn't look like it's worked because nobody has enough workers. Help wanted signs are everywhere. But next year when DeWine is running for governor, I, I would think his opponent on the Democratic side would say to people, were you on unemployment last year? Mike DeWine said no to giving you an extra $300 that would have cost the state nothing. I would think that's a powerful message. I, I would agree. But I in the end, is the court going to consider like whether it was the right thing to do or just whether DeWine had the authority to do it? You know, I don't know what exactly. Um, I mean, as I said, the appeals court had instructed Judge Holbrook to consider these additional factors. But will the Ohio Supreme Court get into the whole debate that that you just laid out or not i don't know i don't know i just it seems so mean to to do what they did to to take money away from so many people who needed it when there was the it was the federal government providing it and i'll be interested to see how it goes if it you probably can't answer this if the judge said no if the supreme court said no you have to allow them to get the money would they get it retroactively I believe they would. I don't see why they wouldn't. Yeah. So you start adding up the 300 bucks, 300 bucks, 300 bucks. That's a lot of money that that would be a powerful message to people. Yeah, sure would. Can't wait to see how this one ends. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. That'll do it. Come back tomorrow for Jane Cahoon's final podcast episode before she heads off into retirement. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast.